Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Wrestling Talk. I'm your co-host, Willie B. As always, we are coming to you from the outskirts of the greatest territory in wrestling history, Memphis, Tennessee. Here to tell you about today's legendary guest is the founder, promoter, and CEO of this podcast, my tag team partner, Mayor McCall. Thank you, as always, Willie B. We have a very, very special guest with us today. She has been a wrestler, a manager, valet, and wrestling personality known all over the world. She has worked with some of the greatest professional wrestlers the world has ever seen in her time in the territories with such organizations as World Class Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only, the perfect 10 baby doll. Hey, y'all. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me with y'all. Hey, it's a, the honor is ours. Thank what, you so what, much what, for What an us. honor and ple, pleasure and privilege, and we, we really, really appreciate you being with us. <laughs> Got you tongue-tied already. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> when you're talking to the perfect 10, that happens. <laughs> yeah, I seem to cause that effect, don't I? <laughs> you do, you do. The perfect 10, and we are tongue-tied as always. So uh, let's get this started. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in professional wrestling? Oh my gosh, it's, um, right. I just realized that when people say that they've been in wrestling all their life, I literally have been in wrestling all my life. Uh, both of my pe- uh, parents were professional wrestlers. My dad uh, wrestled as Nick Roberts and promoted in Lubbock, Texas for more than 20 years. And then my mom wrestled as Lorraine Johnson. She was uh, traveled the world, was one of the few uh, women wrestlers in the 50s. I've been doing a little bit of research on this since my daughter now wrestles. There were only like 45 female wrestlers whenever my mother was wrestling back oh. in the 50s. Wow. And when you think like women and entitlement and women getting into the workforce and having freedom and the whole thing, my mom had a Cadillac, was traveling the world, had her own money ran her own business as herself. And I think of that as like how pioneering is that for a woman, especially like in the forties coming into the fifties and, and out of just world war two and the Korean war and the whole thing, you know, having that power and that much confidence in yourself that you take yourself out on the road and present yourself in this way. And just, I'm so proud of what she did. And, and, you know, just, it was amazing. She was a strong and independent and so, woman long before it was uh, fashionable to say so. Exactly. And and I look back at my mom. I mean, she was carrying a water bottle like back in the 1960s, like everybody carries a water bottle now. She wanted, she was really into the health, fitness, and kind of went to the health food store before it was like really cool and was jogging and did the tennis and the whole thing. So she was really into the physical fitness before the big crazes and stuff. And then... Um, I grew up into the like the perfect family because I love professional wrestling. Even if my parents weren't wrestlers, I know that I would just love the sport. I would love the theatrics of it. I love just everything about it. So being born into a wrestler, into a family where both of your parents were wrestlers, it's like perfect. So I grew up with my, my dad on TV on Saturday afternoons, promoting the show and doing promos and interviews. And then they did the weekly show on Wednesdays at Fair Park Coliseum where we had everybody from, we had Terry Funk's very first matches there in Lubbock. We wow. had the world champion, Dory Funk Jr. We had Harley Race. Being part of the NWA, uh, my dad's accounts uh, were guaranteed to have the world champion at least twice a year. That way he could build up, you know, the angle, you know, like build up a baby face or heel, whatever was needed for that. Um, 
whatever, who was, whoever was champion to build it up so that when the world champion came in, they would have an opponent suitable for them. Um, so your father, your father promotion was, meant, was an NW, sorry, your, your father promotion was an NWA affiliate. And so therefore to remind fans that, you know, you, he, like you said, he was obligated or he was, um, able to have the NWA champion, whoever it was there twice a year. That's, that's a pretty big, pretty big deal. Right. At least, well, and, and sometimes it was more than twice a year, depending on how hot the opponent was that he had built up for it. Cause like whenever the funks were world champions, of course, we got them a little bit more than like when Harley Race was champion because gotcha. Harley Race was up there in Kansas City. We were just kind of a home territory there. So um, I grew up watching like Dory and Terry Funk. Dusty Rhodes came through. Manny Fernandez went to school up at West Texas State. He was wrestling there. That's how I met Tully Blanchard when I was like 13, 14 years old because he was a quarterback for West Texas State. He also was... Um, Weekend DJ, like an overnight weekend DJ at the college radio station. Not wow. many of you know that. I did not. That's and a, um, something new. Wow. And because of the funks, we had a lot of the uh, Japanese guys go through. I, I met uh, Tommy Teruka. Um, he used to give me stamps off the letters that his wife would send him because I was like into collecting stamps and coins at the time. Um, Andre the Giant came through at least twice a year. We had big build-ups with, like, the Sheik, um, where my dad uh, brought in truckloads of sand so that he could have, like, an Arabian death match with a Super Destroyer. Um, he actually bought a snake, a big boa constrictor that I named Captain Crunch so that the Sheik could take <laughs> the snake down to the ring. And then he put it in the bag, and then I'd carry the snake back. And I was, like, 14, 15 at the time. I was just really young. So it was just, it was great. It was perfect. So that whenever I was kind of like eavesdropping on my parents, they were talking about meeting a girl for Gina Hernandez, which at that time we'd gone to a world class. We were using the Von Erich. Um Bunks had sold their part of the their territory, and I think Murdoch had had it for a while. I'm not sure, but it had bounced around. But we went to world class for about a year or two before we went to, uh, actually it was about four years, before I started here in, uh, the rumors that Gina was meeting a girl. Well, back in the day, the um, girls were not a allowed to wrestle against men, and men were not allowed to touch women. That was just taboo. That was just not done. So when Gina had the nemesis of Stella Mae French, which was Sunshine's truck-driving auntie that carried a, an axe handle and beat up truck drivers in the parking lot, they needed to get a girl to side with Gino to help him combat this situation he was in without touching the other girl. So I snuck in there and stole my dad's black book and went down to a boyfriend's house and used his phone to call the Dallas office. Uh, David Manning thankfully answered the phone, gave him this bill like, hey, you know, I heard my parents talking and maybe you're looking for a girl for Gino and I think that I would fit the part and he was thrilled right off the very bat, like that was going to work. Like I had the size, the look, the whole thing. He says, well, we're getting ready to have a meeting with uh, Fritz. He says, upstairs. He said, give me a couple minutes. He says, I'll, I'll give it to him, see what they say, and I'll call you right back. So I waited, waited, waited. About 45 minutes later, he calls up. He says, Fritz absolutely loves it. And we're going to use you. So I went and I worked with Gino from like uh, Labor Day on 1984 
to uh, Christmas Day, and I had two shows in Florida, and that's where I met Tully and um, Dusty and gave them the idea because I didn't have anywhere else to go after that. And Tully was actually looking for a girl. They were actually looking for Sunshine. And so when they heard that a blonde girl from Texas was, like, in Florida, they were like, oh, well, this blonde from Texas is going to work out a lot better when they saw me. So, and so, backtrack real quick. So, um, when I just, you were. I started out in January of 85 and worked almost a whole year with Tolly. And then, like, it was crazy. It so, was just so much fun. So, in 84, when you went to World Class, you were, you, were, you were booked specifically for that angle with Gino. And so, once that angle was over, that's when you were, that's, like you said, you had to, you, had, you, you ran into Dusty and Tully, and that's when you realized, hey, maybe it's time to try new territory. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Well,. I knew that the, uh, that my spot was because Sunshine uh, Valerie French was in rehab at the time. Uh, she had uh, run into some addiction problems and thankfully was able to, to catch it and get a hold of herself and, and know that she needed help. So it was like perfect timing for all of us because when she came back to the Cotton Bowl, oh my gosh, she was gorgeous. She was back to the old Sunshine. She looked like a brand new girl. And she just took the reins and ran with it. So it was all depending on whether Sunshine was going to get better or not, whether, like, how far everything was going to go. But, I mean, she kicked it. She looked great. She came off that helicopter, and then she was with World Class for years after that. So she definitely got herself in a good place. Um, I had no problem moving on. I mean, that's what this business is about, to just go hopefully go on to bigger and better things. I knew that after thank, uh, Christmas Day and the day after in Florida, I didn't have any other dates booked. That was it. And uh, I, did, okay. I had gone to school. <coughs> I wanted to be a paramedic, and then I wanted to go do ski patrol up in Colorado. So I was going through my EMT classes to get everything started, and I only had two weeks left whenever I quit to go to Dallas. I I didn't want to go back to school at that time. I, I loved wrestling. I loved being in front of crowds. I loved being a heel. I wanted to continue. It was in your blood. It was. And so there were so many territories at the time. I knew that if I just kept throwing that line out in the water, someone would get it. Well, thank goodness the first line I really threw out. I mean, I, I caught the grand champion. Yeah. And whenever I went to Florida, um, I had landed, gotten the rent a car a huge bottle of Jack Daniels for Michael Hayes and because and, he was booking Florida at the time and I thought Florida would be a great place to go to work you know but he said that they were getting ready to close down Florida that it had slowed down that he was going to pick it back up after January and that I really needed to go over and talk to Dusty Dusty was over in the other dressing room and that he was, and I still remember to this day, Michael Hayes, he's getting ready to blow up the Carolinas. And I thought that was such a strange way to put things. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so um, it was funny because in my head, I was like, damn, I wish I had that Jack Daniels back. But he had it. He was already down the hall. And so um, I went I went into the other dressing room, and Dusty's sitting in a big chair, and Tolly's off to his right-hand side and kind of, like gave him the deal, like, hey, I'm, you know, been working in Dallas and you know was world class, and I'd really like to continue. And these are my last dates, and maybe you could find a place to use me. And do you have any girls right now or whatever? And they didn't. Of course, back then there were no girls in the territory at all. 
they had girls that came into the territory, but there were no girls actually in the territory. And so I had no idea that they were looking for a girl for Tully at the time. They had been having a contest for a couple of weeks, actually maybe a couple of months, where they had gotten VHS tapes and postcards and letters with a bunch of pictures of girls wanting to be Tully's perfect woman. And when they saw me, they, it was like, cha-ching, they saw money. So yes. it just worked. The, the perfect teen. <laughs> the perfect yep. teen. If you will. If you will. If you yes. will. If you will. I'll never, t- I'll never tip my hat to Baby Doll. I'd rather tip it to a Jezebel. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly, yes. exactly. But that's what I wanted to back up, you know, and just, just address something like we have had some great, great success on this show, and we've had some really big names on this show, but you are the first female guest to ever appear on our show, and we thank you for that. Yes, yes. And I think oh, it's wow. just, I think it's so ironic or whatever, and it was not done purposely, but I actually had sent you a message on Dusty Road, which would have been Dusty Rhodes' birthday. There was just so much stuff going around on social media, on Facebook, a lot of vigilettes, every, you know, everything. And I, I got to thinking, I'm like, that would be an awesome guest to have. I wonder if Baby Doll would be interested in, you know, being a guest on our show. So that's, that's, and I'm, a, I'm a huge, um, this is Willie B here, and I'm, I'm a huge uh, Crockett fan. So that's probably my favorite era of wrestling, period. I mean, we're, we're Memphis people. So we are, we're huge Memphis wrestling. Uh, Marks, we grew up uh, in the Memphis area, and it's where we live to, to this day. And we, so we're we are we are tried and true uh, Memphis. But my favorite period um, is is the mid mid to mid eighties to early to the you know late eighties of, of, of Jim Crockett promotions. I think I don't think wrestling got any better than that. Right. Well, y'all saw I think with Memphis because they ran I think a lot more regularly than like Charlotte did because Charlotte I think was like once a month. But I think. Some of the Tennessee towns were like weekly and stuff that y'all sh- saw a lot of shenanigans because they had to put something out there. Yes. And sometimes they went yes. to the way ridiculous because they had to put something out there. The but style. then again, <laughs> y'all had Lawler and Andy Kaufman, and that was epic. Yes. You know, the staples around here obviously were, were, were the king. And you had, you know, you have Bill Dundee. And then, of course, you know, with your weekly. You know, every Saturday morning you had you had Lance Russell and Dave Brown. They they were the they were the faces of Memphis wrestling. They were the host. I mean, they were our they were our our, our Gordon Soley. Um, but it's it's right. just uh, but, you know, but we we're we're appreciative of of all of all wrestling. But we're more we're big fans of the territory days and before it really went national. Vince Vince and you know blew blew up the territories. But we are um, I, I just again to me my favorite time period is 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 your time and, and crock promotion so it's a big big honor to be able to talk to you and especially ask you about your relationship oh, with, with was, dusty and so tully blessed. and all I mean, these people so right i, I, I was so blessed i mean talk about being at the right place at the right time and just having the right look and being what they wanted and not being afraid to be a heel and not being afraid to have people hate you and and trying to assault you and beat you up and the whole thing i mean it was just it all worked, and I was so blessed to be really seriously in the right place at the right time. With uh, absolutely, with both your parents being wrestlers and the connections you know they had in the wrestling world, like huge, huge connections. Who was actually like handpicked or or sought out to actually train you? Was it your parents, or was it uh, somebody else? Well, my parents didn't want me in the business at all because it was back then. When you think about with the girls and stuff, it. Nice girls did not go into wrestling. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> right. And so I think I kind of changed that, you know, made it more of a business and more like you're not in the business to be with the boys. You're in the business to do business. And um, 
of course, that they did not want their uh, 22-year-old daughter quitting college and going off and living down in Dallas and running after Gino Hernandez, but that's what happened. <laughs> not and, Gino. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I don't blame them, but, you know, I had, I had my life and I wanted to live it, and it was... Um, you just had to live by your own standards. And, you know, it was just, I, I think I changed a lot of things, not only for how the guys looked at girls in the business, but how the girls were also treated in the business. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, we, we, we have a, you know, you, you look at the WWF days, you had the first lady of, of WWF, you know, Miss Elizabeth. I, I, would, I would dare say you were the first lady of Jim Crocker Promotions. And you were involved in so oh, many, I, I so was, many I memorable, was, memorable I was angles. almost a year ahead of her. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. I, I started, exactly. uh, yeah. Did the you do some training with Nelson Royal? The only one that was really ahead of me was uh, Miss Linda okay. with Adrian uh, Street. Yep. She, she was about six years before me, and I think... Uh, Linda Dallas, not Linda Dallas. Um, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Nancy. Um, oh my gosh, Dark um, Fallen Angel. Oh, Nancy, uh, Nancy, Nancy Sullivan. Nancy Sullivan. Yeah, Nancy Sullivan. She she started as Fallen Angel back in uh, June of '84, and I either June or July of '84, and I started in September of '84. So yeah. we were just months uh, uh, of each other. But she started just a couple of weeks before I did. <coughs> but yeah, I I, st I started the whole thing. I think because I was I was almost a year before Elizabeth, and then I was almost a year before Missy because Tatum was working. John Tatum was working in Philadelphia, and it was either our first or second show there. And Tolly had like mega heat. I mean, Philadelphia loved heel. So with Tully, this was right before the four horsemen and the whole thing. And Tully being just a really good heel, uh, Philadelphia loved Tully. And we had, like, super heat. We were going back to the dressing room. It was only maybe third or fourth match. And we were getting pelted. And it, it, it was all, I mean, you could tell we had major heat. And when we went back through the curtain, Don Tatum looked at us. And he says, I'm going to get me one of those. And he left the tor territory while well, I found out that he went to Atlanta and picked up Missy Hyatt, and they went to Dallas and started, and started <laughs> their gig there. Wow. So what, what was it like working working with Dusty? Let's backtrack a little bit. Working with Dusty, you know, meeting him as the booker, and then going from, you know, having him a quote-unquote the boss to someone you work with. What, what was the dynamics like? That, well, Dusty was always a boss because he's the booker and he's the office and he's the one that makes sure your name is on that booking sheet every week. And it was... It's kind of weird because, you know, having like a lot of regular jobs and being like not in the business and, and working for, you know, big corporations and mom and pop things, it, he was more than a boss. You know, it was just like he was creating your future. <coughs> I'm not, sorry. So if you have a regular job, you just know that you go to work eight to five. You know what you're going to do every day, in and out. Everything's kind of planned out. But with Dusty, he was going to take your character and either make you a star or middle card or first matches, whatever. He had that clay in his hand of what he was going to mold into you so 
you kind of wanted to give him stuff to work with, you know, like things or looks or whatever, just to pique that interest and to pique that oh, creativity and give you just more and more and more. I remember taking a whole suitcase full of clothes into the office and spreading it out and going like, what do you want me to wear? What do you want me to look like? And whenever I was with him, he wanted me to look like Joan Collins or Linda Evans from Dynasty. Okay. So it was, it was, it was that, you know, it was just Dusty wanted to make stars and he wanted to create the stars in the heavens. And one of the things we like to do, we always like to keep the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the memories alive, especially for the stars of yesterday. They're no longer with us for the audience. Give us a good Gina Hernandez story. Oh my gosh. Um, Lord have mercy. Just something that you know, know stands this, out. That or, I thought know. that I knew, I knew something about Gina Hernandez cause I'd had a crush on him for years and that I knew what I knew, but I didn't really know. I, I knew whenever I worked with him, I didn't know he was married. I didn't know he had two daughters. I had heard that his um, dad was Paul Bosch, but then I find out like his mom was almost considered an arena rat down in Houston. <laughs> so it was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, I that's didn't know about it. his gambling. Huh? Well, no, I, I was going to backtrack. I had, we had, the internet lore talks about that Paul Bosch may or may not have been his biological father, and that's uh, so. It's you know that it's it, it's you know you're I guess you're you're saying you you had heard that as well. I heard that as well, yes, okay. and that I had no idea. Like he was like a preliminary wrestler that had worked in Houston for like years and years and years and years. And when you look at his dad and you look at Gino, it's like yeah, that's your dad. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I. I, I don't think that Gino overdosed. There was just too much cocaine in his system and in his stomach. No one does that unless they actually like are pouring it down your throat. Um, I'm not even sure if the body was his, although with decomposition and the, the body had been there for a couple of days, weird things happened. But, I mean, it's just one of those mysteries. I would like to think that Gino's on an island somewhere drinking a Mai Tai and uh, enjoying life, but I think that some bad people did some very bad things to him. Yeah. Just to make a, an example, because yeah. there was too many things wrong. I know personally that uh, Gino hated cigarette smoke. I mean, with a passion, would just come up and yell or would just stalk off if someone was smoking around him. So to have a, a package of cigarettes, like in the apartment no one would have been able to get a pack of cigarettes in his apartment without him knowing or without him saying something okay. also with david manning and the locks and stuff i know that seeing him like with his corvette and his cars and his bags he was real particular he knew where his stuff was at all times and it, he he just knew so there were just things that were off but it was it was very unfortunate i um when the internet come, came out and we started like talking wrestling and fans and the whole things. And, um, I, I like being out there. My husband hates it, but I like being very social with the fans. Um, someone brought up how Gino Hernandez would have been a perfect fit for the four horsemen. Yes. And yes, he would have been perfect, but he, he would have never left Texas for very long. I don't think he was ever out of Texas for more than a week or two at a time. And that just, that schedule would have never worked. So it's kind of like Austin Idol. He didn't want to leave home. Well, you know, you kind of get, 
Because I it, heard it's we, we, like I am now. Up, I'm up in Western North Carolina, and I, I told my husband, I said, I'm never moving again, and I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, you just kind of get in a spot where you know it's right, you know, and, and even if you go somewhere else, it's not going to make you any better. You're just, you're good where you're at. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Austin Idol is amazing. I, I didn't really get to hang around with him that much because he was kind of more like the late 70s, early 80s. Well, I was more like the mid '80s, and I I didn't really work down in like the Gulf Coast region, uh, but also I was really cool. I, I would see him in the magazines, and now to see him with NWA and his uh, training school there in South Carolina, and I see him in the airport every once in a while. It's it's really cool. I'm I'm glad he's out there. He's having a good time. He's definitely a legend here in Memphis, and the reason I brought his name up, he he's pretty infamous for for. I hate to use the word no showing, but he would he he would maybe not make bookings up in Memphis because he he lived in Florida, and he just didn't he didn't like to fly. Number one, uh, for what I've what I, what we've been told and read, and he he you know he just he was kind of a kind of I guess kind of like Gino. He wanted to stay stay where he was at, <laughs> so that's why I brought, I got brought that name. I got yeah. He's a huge uh, huge legend in Memphis, though huge legend in Memphis. Oh, was, yes, uh, absolutely. He he was superstar Billy Graham before yes. there was superstar Billy Graham. <laughs> yes. I had the pleasure. I wasn't too, too close to you, but I was close enough. Uh, my wife and I, we had the pleasure a couple weeks ago of going to uh, Shawsville, Virginia. I was actually in uh, the Boogie Woogie Man, Handsome Jimmy Vagans class of 2023 this year. So I've, I've heard you say some awesome things about Handsome Jimmy Vagan over the years. Oh, yeah. I should be on the wall somewhere up there. I. I think uh, Landell and myself and a couple of his students were inducted uh, just a couple of years before Landell passed away. Maybe like 2012, maybe? Well, 2011, we'll, something we'll like see, that. That, that should show you you didn't waste your time doing the show this morning. I've done some good <laughs> things. I was actually inducted this year as part of the 2023 class, the mayor, John McCall. So, you know, I'm doing my thing this year. Awesome. Yeah, Boogie's Place is, is so nice up there. I mean, talk about, you know, what a good investment with his money. And his, he's always so – you can see whenever I – I see Jamie probably four or five times a year, and it's always a blessing when I get to see him. And he's always so happy and so gracious, and he gives me big hugs. And, you know, Jimmy Valiant, my gosh, he's a freaking legend. I mean, he was a legend before there were legends. I mean, 50 – 50 years in the business, five decades. Yeah, he is, he is a staple life. here. And in you look Memphis. at all the gimmicks. Yeah. You look at like all the characters he had and all the gimmicks and, you know, had the big chest and worked out the whole thing. I mean, talk about someone that would morph his character to work out with the territory where he was at. He had a in number one song. Where, he had a number one song in the late <laughs> 70s on, on FM 100 in Memphis that played on the Memphis radio station. He had a number one hit that would play nonstop here in Memphis. That's that's how big oh, that's how big that's how big of a deal Handsome Jimmy is, and in, in in especially back in the, in the territory days, he was in Memphis. And like you said, when you meet, right. you, I, you had, know, he's, I had just I had just started working with Crockett, and uh, was going and doing TVs, and you know, being new and everything, you just kind of go in as an owl. You know, you got big eyes and don't say anything, and you're just like watching. So uh, I'm like getting ready, and and was just kind of waiting for a turn. And this big, tall guy walks in with, I swear, it was maroon pants. And whenever I say maroon, they were maroon bell-bottoms, like the 1970s, like bell-bottoms. And he had green and white, the really pointy-toed Austin Hall boots, but they were lime green with the white 
outer lay with a, a eagle and with a phoenix eagle and stuff on it. And probably about a three-inch walking heel on there. And he comes walking in there. I was like, oh, my God, who is this cat? <laughs> I couldn't imagine who it was. You're like, mercy, daddy. And mercy. Mercy. That's daddy. it. And then when um, I, I wasn't working in the ring at the time, but I was sewing. And I remember I made his little son handsome a uh, Batman cape and uh, full body suit and had the utility belt and everything on it when, oh, I guess, handsome was probably about five years old. Oh, wow. That is cool. And like you talked about him being such a legend before legends were legends. And when you meet him, I swear he's the nicest human being you've ever met on the planet. Oh, um, that's it. So gracious. Just happy to be here. Happy to be with the fans. Jimmy just enjoys his life. He's one of those people that you just like being around because he's always upbeat. He's, he never says a bad thing about anybody. He's just he, I, I, I like being around him because he's happy and he's just a good person from, you know, just everything that he's been around me. Absolutely. Like, we, you know, he, he knew we had like nine plus hours to drive, you know, to, to get back. And, you know, I gave him a hug when I was leaving and all of a sudden he just grabbed me and prayed, prayed with me. You know, that's what type of dude he is. You know, he's awesome, dude. That's it. That's it. Didn't cost anybody a dime, but it will last with you forever. Absolutely. You and uh, you and Tully, you know, talking about working with Tully, y'all had some great feuds with Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA. What are some of your memories of Magnum? Just working with him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Magnum was one of those that you look at him and he's gorgeous and he's got the body and the personality, but Magnum has always been just a really good guy like that like the good looks and the, the career and the whole thing never went to his head while i was working with him he was always just like one of those really good guys and then his feud with tolly was epic because they really didn't like each other i don't know the chrysalis of how it all started you know like what tripped it you're talking, you're but talking there shooting. was a, a genuine, a, a genuine shoot style that generally didn't had a genuine dislike. Yeah. Okay. They they just from the from the get go, and I don't know it. You know, at some point you can say, okay, this is what happened. They had a fight, or there was something in a bar, or something was said. I was there like ninety percent of the time. I never saw something that happened. I think that it was, it was just the competition in the office to try and be like Dusty's number one. And I think Tully thought that he wanted, because Tully did want to be that number one, but then Magnum was there. And he was never going to be that number one spot because Magnum was always going to be Dusty's right hand. They just had that tight friendship, that camaraderie, that, I mean, it was there till the end. Well, know, I, just I, the I very end, it was there. Personally, I can't really envision Tully being a, a, a white heat babyface, you know, or a white meat babyface. I can I can always see him, you know, being the heel. Like he, to me, he would he's a natural heel, uh, unless I'm missing something. No, no, no. He he was, and I think the only time that he was a babyface was for a very short time in San Antonio for his dad's promotion, and it didn't work <laughs> out. It did not last very long with Magnum. I have done so many shows with Magnum and I'm so blessed because promoters were put, put us together and I get to sit with him and I get to visit with his kids with Lucy and Tucker. And it's just, it's magic with us. And, and Magnum is one of those just really good guys. And that I look at the tragedy that he went through and how hard he fought back because whenever it had first happened, 
um, I had talked with him or was like in a group of people where he was talking and he said that they were wanting to put that, um, that halo thing around yeah. where they drill into your skull so that it would stabilize your head and neck and you don't move yep. because they told him literally you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to move and you're probably not gonna you're not gonna be it's not probably you are not gonna be able to walk they told him all these things that he couldn't do but from what I heard in the what he had said was that Magnum just didn't hear about what he couldn't do it was always what he was going to do. Focus and on what you when can. he was laying in the bed, he remembered like pushing his head against the pillow just as hard as he could. And he said it seemed like weeks and months where there was just nothing. But he knew that he had to keep going. So he just he pushed as hard as he could push it. Then there was that one day that he knew he felt something. He knew, even if nobody saw it or felt it or whatever, he felt it, that there was that little spark. And from that time on, he just pushed that head, just pushed that head. And it just genuinely started to come back and he was able to walk. He proved them all wrong and the whole thing. And it has not been easy for Magnum. Magnum could have laid back and got, you know, all the charity and all the government help and all the things and sat back and, Oh, woe is me. And look at what happened to me and look what I could have done or whatever. Magnum never did that. Magnum has always presented himself as a crusader and a fighter of like, look what I, was able to do with what happened to me and that he's, he's held that to a standard for himself so that it's, it's just amazing because I've never heard him gripe. I've never heard him bitch. It's never been. He's always looking forward to the next event. He's got his beautiful wife. He's got his beautiful kids. He's worked really hard you because know, he was doing the cell phone tower thing and beautiful vehicles and everything. And he's taken a tragedy and he's made it so much for himself and it's just I, he, I'm so he's happy like a, he's like a phoenix. I'm so he, happy that he's in a good place he, he rose above the challenges that were handed to him and he, he, he said you know what I'm going to be better and not be bitter and he you can see it exactly who, who he is and who he is as a man and who he is as um, you know it, you know, truthfully it's just as just who he is as a human being and he, he is he's right um, and, he's it, and it's from just due diligence it's from just due diligence and hard work and just being pretty much bullheaded and like I'm I'm gonna be better no matter what's in front of me I'm just gonna be better and and he's proven it and I'm so happy he's my friend and I'm so happy when I get to see him well thank you thank you for sharing that with us that's a that's a incredible story uh, and, and and your well your like like them. look I mean look at how many guys we see now that they get hurt or whatever and yep. oh poor pitiful me and I can't do anything and I can't work and da 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 Dude, Magnum created his own business yep. and has he has a beautiful wife and stepkids and kids and you know and that's all because he did it. Nobody else helped him. Yep, <laughs> it's Agreed. amazing. It is amazing. Should I be laying there feeling sorry for myself for I don't know how long? <laughs> you know. Well, it's, you know, it's just human nature to do that. He rose above what human nature would have us do. Amen. I want to say and thank you for sharing that. What a what a what a, be- what a beautiful story, and we're we're glad to hear that about Magnum as well. And he was you never thought about that, did you? No, like, look no. at what he, you know. And and I was, I, and that actually, that epiphany came to me at a show this past summer at with Gary Dameron up in ASW. I was sitting next to Magnum, and he had Tucker with him, and the fans, and you know, just we were talking about like who's what was his favorite picture, which picture sold the most, and. You know, just with the kids and everything, and I'm just thinking, wow, you know, just and it and it came to me like, 
look at what's happened to you and look you're up in West Virginia with the fans and appreciating everything it was just it was an epiphany I had I had an epiphany that's awesome that is awesome <laughs> I want to say maybe at the end of 85 early 86 there was like an angle or a series of angles you know set up you had been with Tully and they wanted to bring J.J. Uh, Dillon in as, as Tully's manager and you kind of made a shift to almost being like Ric Flair's valet is that correct? Well, actually what had happened, um, I had worked almost a whole year with Tully. We had worked primarily with um, Dusty and then had gone with Magnum with the um, Starcade I Quit match. And he had lost the I Quit match to Magnum. And so now it was like, where are we go? Because we'd done like so many vignettes and so many things with Dusty. And then the deal with Magnum, I mean, once you, I mean, Tully never said I quit, but he lost the match. So where do you come from there? Unless you literally set Magnum on fire, there was nowhere to go. Right. So they were going to, uh, Dusty was going to put me with Buddy Landell and we were going to go against Flair and have a run with the NWA title. Sounded great. Look great. Great step for me. Great step for Tully because Tully would go with JJ. Um, I would go with Landell. That would give Landell a run with Flair. If that worked out, that would give Landell a run with Dusty. And it would even give Landell a run with Tully and, and JJ if it all worked out. Unfortunately, um, Buddy had a run in with a love for cocaine. And Tully and Buddy went on a little bit of a binge and didn't come back in the right time and didn't make TV. And he pissed Dusty off and Dusty fired him and um, took the belt away from him or whatever. But I think he had the national title on him at the time. I wasn't sure. Yes, yes. And uh, fired him and that was it. And then Dusty was like, oh, well, I've got Doll and Tully and we can't do much more with the two of them. So what are we going to do? And so he says, I'm going to have Doll. So throughout, through the thick and thin of all of it, we did the big slap and <coughs> the tickets to Puerto Rico that never happened, that did happen, then I was gone, and then I was there, and where have I yes. been? And I'm trying to explain myself. And to me, I mean, they gave me the premises of so you like impro- what they wanted. But you, you improvised. You you worked. You, you, you did the work. You put in the thought, and you... You know, it wasn't it wasn't all right, written I, out scripted like the, today's wrestling. No, oh no, 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 no. I had the idea they had given me the deal of the tickets to Puerto Rico, no accountability of time. JJ had given me the tickets, but Tully didn't know that JJ had given me the tickets and we just went with that. Ah. So and then when I watch this today, because back in the day we, we didn't have time to watch ourselves. We we had boxes of VHS tapes because we had taped for the weeks, but we never had time to actually sit down and watch them. So now through the beauty of YouTube, I can w- go back and every once in a while, just something will pop up in the in the loop I'm watching. And it's like, wow. So I, I was watching that and I'm like, I would have hit myself too, because it's just so irritating and you're trying to explain yourself and it's just like, shut up. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was like perfect timing. And uh, I believe I knew that I was going to get slapped. I didn't know that I was going to get slapped that hard. But um, Tully, Tully did lay it in. But at that time, I have no problem with it. And I have no problem with it now because it had to look good. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he couldn't he, work it. Absolutely. You, you got, and, you, you, yeah. 
You think secretly, today, you know, you and Tully you know, had worked together at, for the last year and, you know, a couple things. He's just like, I'm going to take some aggression out on her this day. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am sure so. Just ask my husband now. I can be. He says, man, I know that. He was like, I now know how you pissed off 20,000 people. He says, because it takes no time for you to piss me off. It legit looked like it hurt. Like, yep, seriously. did my job. Controlled chaos. That would that would have had to sting a little bit. It looked it looked legit. It will see and now like with YouTube and stuff, you can like with my hit with Cornette on the back of the head when Tully slapped me. Whenever I slapped the guys with TBS, it all looks good because I knew it had to look good. I I didn't know how to work, so how am I going to work and try and and do what they do if I didn't know? They just you know and so now I mean if you slow motion it the whole thing yeah and and. I look at it this way. It's almost forty years later, and we're we're still talking about it. We are the I'm level, but and, and to get back the level of heat that that your angles that you were involved in that that was able to produce back then can never be duplicated today. I mean, you know, the fans that that was people genuinely believed there was still the the era of kayfabe, and you know, just go, right. to go back to the court one, I I, got, I I watched it recently. Uh, I think it was around nineteen eighty six on Worldwide Wrestling. And you know where where Cornette and the Midnight's, uh, uh, I think Cornette hits you with the racket in the in the stomach, and then he goes and they they, they do the infamous promo about you know professional wrestling's no place for a woman. The crowd just went absolutely insane, and you and I just go oh, yeah. back to you just can't produce that level of heat today. It's just not possible. I, I went from I, I think in 1985, the, my baby doll character, the the gimmick that I worked, how I went out to the ring with Tolly, the whole thing, that whole year of 1985, I think David Dahl was able to generate more heat in professional wrestling in the mid-Atlantic territory than any female any time in the history of professional wrestling. Agreed. I literally had death threats. I had people come at me with knives. Manny Fernandez protected me at the Great American Bash from a guy running, actually running at me with a knife. Um, I had to fight my way to and from the ring just about every show because they didn't have the security like they have now there were no guardrails there were no you know the police thought well she thinks she's badass show me who she's badass and so they'll walk beside me and see me get assaulted and it's just like and you know what are they going to do they know it's part of the show so man I okay if they can hit me I'm going to hit back and I hit back well, and that goes to your talent it goes to the fact that you could draw heat as a heel as the Hill Valet, right? And you also drew even even slightly more heat as the Babyface Hill for Dusty or the Babyface Valet for Dusty Rhodes, and it just it, it, went, it, it, it definitely went, both went ways. from one. Well, that's that's the way it wants to work when you're when your territory gets to the point where you've got to do something, and it's time to turn someone. That's who you turn is whoever has got the most amount of heat or the most amount of love from the fans. Like whenever Dusty turned Nikita. No one saw that coming. No. And no one can say they did because they saved that from everybody. And when Nikita came out, the people everywhere, that was a worldwide gasp of in the professional wrestling world. Seriously. Yeah. I've actually contacted uh, Manny Fernandez about doing the show, and he said he could do it. I'm going to have to put that in the notes and ask him about saving you at the Great American Bash from a guy trying to stab you with a knife. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, he he loves me, man. He loves me. I've known Manny for, oh my gosh, like he was at, I think he was at West Texas State either the same time as Tolly or maybe a little bit after, something like that. 
But um, oh, I've known Manny for like forever. He's he's just he's crazy. He's a loco, tough guy, mucho loco, yeah. Um, but just I mean, he's one of the. I love seeing him. I just saw him um, at the gathering in Charlotte in August. Uh, T Mart Productions does a really big fan fest in uh, Charlotte in August, and he was there. It's the first time I'd seen him in gosh, maybe fifteen years. He's been having some health issues, and uh, just travel sometimes is difficult. But it was very cool seeing him. I posted some pictures. We were down in the bar. He was drinking Coors Lights, and I was drinking um, Tequila Sunrises. Ah, awesome. Hanging out with Manny Fernandez. <laughs> yep. 1986 Great American Bash. You and Dusty and Magnum would... would uh, Go against Cornette and the Midnight Express. What was it work? What was it like working with like the Midnight Express? Uh, Bobby Eaton and I should would have been Dennis Dennis Condry at that time. Yeah, eighty six would have been Dennis. Okay, so so I'm working with some of the best professional wrestlers in the world in six man tag teams, such as Rock and Roll Express, Magnum and Dusty, and the Road Warriors. Plus, there's a big concert with David Allen Coe every night. And I'm going against Bobby Eaton, who's taking arm drags for me. I am sitting on top of the world. I couldn't have been higher up in that throne than you couldn't see me. I mean, I was in a good place. And I'm getting paid. And I'm getting ready to get married. So, yeah, life is good. <laughs> I, want, I want to explain to the audience how that came about. Because after the after the 86 Great American Bash, there was like a 13-city like Great American Bash tour that followed that. And that's, where you're, that's what you're making reference to. You would team with the Rock and Roll Express and the Road Warriors to go against, uh, you know, the Midnight Express. Right. Dusty took us on tour. Um, it was the best of seven series where it was uh, Magnum and Nikita, I believe. And then um, they had the six man like with me against, because we built up the angle, but it was me and Cornette uh, from, I believe it was April of 86 is when he hit me in the stomach. Yes. And that was in Greenville, uh, uh, South Carolina. And um, Cornette, I mean, this is, uh, you talk about so cool. Um, we used to get mail at TBS whenever we were there Saturday morning. And some of us, like myself, I'd get a shoebox full, which was pretty cool. You know, like I'm a girl from West Texas. Nobody knows me, and I'm getting, like, people writing me. Now, like Rock and Roll Express and, like, Magnum and Dusty, they're getting literally, like, post office bags full. And then telling them they were getting, like, their little shoe. All of us were getting mail. Let's just put it that way. So whenever... And I would read it, so and they got so mad at me because I would read the same mail, and they were like, "Doll, oh, you're such a mark." <laughs> so they they wouldn't read any of the mail. Well, not that they would have time to read all of it. But. I saw them. I saw them put the letters like in their bags. They would like openly read it like I would because I didn't care. I didn't know I was having a good time. You're marking out. And so, <laughs> exactly. So I was. Well, who wouldn't? You know, you get someone riding you, and they're they're like an eight year old from, you know, like like let's say Birmingham, Alabama, and they see you and and they love you, and like their grandparents hate you, but they love you. I'll tell you what, my my husband that I have now, Chad Bird, wrote to me when he was fourteen and said that he would take care of Cornette if I would just let him know that he had no problem taking care of Cornette. Now he was fourteen. 
and he mailed it to TBS. And so to this day, he still reminds me that he wrote me a fan letter when he was 14. If there's any bookers out there listening, we need to get Chad and Cornette. Chad yes. and Cornette. <laughs> Chad, is, uh, Chad, Chad, is pers- Chad, Chad was persistent. Wow, he, he, he went after awesome. it. <laughs> that, oh, wow. Hey, wow. So, let me, let me roll right into this, too, though, because uh, Willie, like he said, he's such a big fan of Crockett. Well, wait, wait, wait. This, I, I, this, we got to go with this because with Cornette. We talk about like heat in like 1985, 1986. I legit got, and oh my gosh, I so wish I saved them. I got letters that were like weird on the outside. So I'm like, why does this letter look like this? They were letters from jail. And you know, if you've ever gotten letters from jail, they look different than letters from real, just regular people. So whenever I opened it up, they were prisoners that were willing to, whenever they got out, take care of Cornette. That is that is hilarious. And they were serious, and I was like, oh, and I showed them to Cornette. I was like, hey, dude, you know, I take care of this. But I remember, like, he and I hope he's got them because I actually showed him letters and to the office, and there were quite a few of them. And and you know, they're writing from jail, so I believe them. That's and that, again, that goes back to the level of 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 believability, and everybody bought in, and it was it it, it was real. Because you you all believed it was real too, and you, and it showed. And that would have been a hell of a promo too. Like, listen, Cornette, I've got Chad, I've got inmates, I got the Rock and Roll <laughs> Express, I got the Road Warriors. We're coming for you, Daddy. <laughs> oh, see, and I just had. Oh my gosh, I did have a match with Cornette back in Spartanburg. Oh my gosh, this was. I had just got. had just gotten the Chad too. I don't even think we were married yet. This was like 2015, 2016 maybe. But I remember going down there because. Um, oh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, you appeared there. in big time wrestling in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Okay. It, it was with him, and I remember that Jim Crockett's uh, uh, granddaughter was there, and her husband, and Jackie Crockett was there, and uh, my husband doesn't really like to go to wrestling shows that much, but he wanted to go see Jackie Crockett, so that was been perfect. Oh my gosh! Okay. Darn it. Missed it. <laughs> I can't wait to tell Chad about that hill out. Wow, that was so what was what was it like to get back in the ring with Cornette after all those years? Did you get some revenge? Oh yes, absolutely. I, I grabbed the headlock on the wrong side and <laughs> it was good though. It was really good. It gave the people exactly what they want wanted and there were some really good pictures out of it and he got like the big powder in the face and yes it worked out really well this this is where i was going the with this before <laughs> this is where i was going with this before because like i said willie is such a big fan of you know crockett promotions and Cornette. i'm a big Cornette fan tell tell willie in the audience that time you almost accidentally decapitated jim Cornette with like a truck and a bull rope oh yeah that was uh they brought that up at the uh, tales of the territory when we were talking about crockett it was, um, I had my James voice. And um, when they unmasked it, it was Tony Zane and Sam Houston. I have no idea who the James boys were, but um, <laughs> we'll just go with that. <clears throat> they had, they had uh, tied up <coughs> Cornette with a bull rope. And they were tying it to the back of the pickup. And I had gotten in the cab of the pickup. And whenever I heard the <coughs> on the tailgate, I was supposed to go. Well, me being excited, and as you can tell by this interview, I love wrestling, and I really, really, really love being baby doll, and I love the whole thing of it. Um, 
I'm supposed to like take off while I'm. It's if I remember, it was a, a standard, so I had to shift. But and and I have no problem driving three on a tree, but I wanted to get that gravel. I wanted to spin the gravel right because you want the effect. Sure. And I only have one take. There's no okay cut. Let's do it again. I've got one shot to make this look really good. So of course I've got, I'm trying to figure this out. And it's a little little loose on the shift, and so okay. So whenever I'm, I've got all this stuff going in my head, I think I hear the. So I take off. Well, it was about uh, eight seconds too soon, <laughs> and they weren't quite ready to let go. And yeah, if they hadn't, have, if uh, I believe it was Dusty hadn't like uh, calf tied before and knew how to like tie and untie real quick, yeah, we would have lost quite a. It was bad. Oh wow! Well, I, uh, oh, that's 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 that is crazy. And that's serious. I mean, if a cornet was like, he, they were so mad. He was like, "Why did you take off?" And, and I'm trying to explain to him that I tried to make it look good. He, he, said, he yeah, didn't cuss at all. I bet. I bet he didn't. Down the road. And, I bet he didn't cuss cuss at all. Oh yeah, and, and <laughs> he was really calm. Magnum and Dusty are <laughs> Magnum and Dusty are like ghost white because they they knew that. Wow, that was close. <laughs> So they were kind of like, oh, yeah, they weren't going to scold me or anything because they knew it looked good, but they were like sheet white because they knew, like, oh. How close <laughs> How close we had to a real a real tragedy. That's that's wild. That is wild. Right. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't kept up with it in the last little while. Have you yet to reveal what is in that Dusty Rhodes envelope? Is that still a big secret these days? Um, I think at the very, very first, I might have, like, said some things and then I saw uh, Dusty and oh where was it I want to say Tampa or maybe it was 2006 in Charlotte um, whenever I started making uh, or DC whenever I started doing FanFest again I asked them I was just like you know I'm really getting asked a lot of like what's in the envelope and, and to this day I really don't know like which way they were going with the angle of it I've seen like some of the promos afterwards but I really, I had heard everything from an interracial uh, relationship to just a, an extramarital relationship to um, very scandalous things that he had done, like when he was um, in college because of West Texas State and the whole thing up there. Um, there was there were so many things that they could have gone into that Dusty hadn't really made up his mind. But I think that... Um, there were there were several things that kind of played into it, which was I'd heard like at the time like uh, Crockett's financial things were really starting to get sketchy. Like the accountants that they had were telling them that they had way more money um, that they had that they really didn't have. There were the assets that that were there, and that if Crockett had known about it, like hey, we don't have the money, we need to cut back, but they didn't tell him that. You know, it was just like. If they tell you that you've got X amount of money and you believe that that's what you've got because you've got, quote, professionals, well, then it's, it, and it's real easy to get in trouble. So that's the whole thing is it, 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 when you're spending big, big money like that, and they were trying to keep up. And to this day, I think that if they had gone with the marketing like what Vince did, it would have been totally, totally different. But we didn't understand that 
you know, like with action figures and the wrestling rings and the, the whole extras, they were just uh, wanting to put out a good wrestling product and the frills and all the extras were just kind of too much. I mean, why do they want that? And we didn't realize that they did want it. Yeah. Yeah, I've also heard Cornette say that <clears throat> had Crockett not tried to go nas- as national, I, I per se, I don't know that's the right right term, as, as, as he did in the, in the late 80s, that it probably would it might have survived a little bit. Crockett promotions would have survived. But that <clears throat> trying to, I guess, trying to compete with Vince and go out to California, go out to the West Coast, and but if he'd stayed within the Carolinas and the in the in the old Atlantic Territory, probably would have it would have you know would have would have survived a little bit longer. I see it's hard because we did do really good tours out there. It was just very expensive to go out there and yeah, that's do what the I mean. Tours. That's what I mean. The, the cost, the cost, and then see, and then that's just it with the expenses, like what they were, and the accountants not keeping up or letting you know that, hey, you're not making the money you think you're making. You know, like if you're thinking, oh, we're making all this great money doing these tours, you're going to keep doing it, when in reality, they should have done a couple of them and, okay, well, this one's not going to work. We need to rein it back. Yeah. Well, of course, Dusty's going to try and grab that brass ring and ride the lightning bolt and try and make it as big as it was. And to me, I think, like with marketing, like when um, I know like when the 900 numbers came out, oh my gosh, WCW made a ton of money with, like that. Yep. But um, some of the stuff that they were putting out, just uh, I look back, they could have done a little bit better, I think, and the marketing of their guys, I think like if you've got Sting and Luger and Magnum and Nikita and the Rock and Roll Express, if you can't make money off from posters and 8x10s and t-shirts and the whole thing, it just seemed like well, in action figures, as a kid, they that was real. Expanded that a lot more. And as a kid, you know, hug them uh, in the teen magazines and stuff. You know, put put Rock and Roll Express in like the whatever the teen pinup magazines were at the time. Absolutely. But see, yeah. they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done that because that was ridiculous. You know, when you think about it, but it would have been so good at that time. Well, we cannot thank you enough for you know for being a guest you know this morning and doing this doing this show with us, and it was it was such an honor. And like I said before, you were the you get the pristine and prestige honor of being the first female guest on Wrestling Talk with Mayor McCall. Yay! Yes, we can't beat that one, can no, we? No one else can be number one. An absolute absolute honor uh, to have you on, and, and especially like I said, I'm a huge huge fan of, of the of the Crockett era, and and you were a, a big big part of that. And it's uh, just been a, a true privilege to talk to you today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye bye.